Welcome back to another episode of Pundalal Talks. This is your host, Brad. Over across the way at the controls is Devin. Hey, how's it going? We're back today with another episode looking, as we promised uh, uh, over the last few episodes, going to take a little bit uh, of a dive back into the Delphi homicides, the two young ladies in um, Delphi, Indiana, that were murdered um, back in February of 2017. Um, a few weeks back, there was a, a, a dump of documents. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about a little bit about that, some of the updates, some of the things that have happened in the case since we last discussed this uh, subject, and um, the legal sides of all those kind of things, and uh, bring everybody sort of up to speed on uh, the latest in that in that case. And there's been some big developments for sure. Yeah. So at first, you know, we'll talk about a little bit to get you in tune with. You know, we this is our second episode on this. We talked about it once before and covered all of that. So we're going to cover just a little bit of that, so that way we can catch you up to speed with what's been going on, and then we're going to continue with all the new stuff. So Richard Allen, he was arrested last year in October 2022, and he was charged with the murders of Abby Williams and Libby German. Those were the poor ladies that were killed in Delphi. Their bodies were found near the Delphi-Monon High Bridge in February 2017. So this has been an open case for quite some time. And if I remember correctly, it was right right next to a, like a railroad track or something. Yeah, the High Bridge is an old... Uh it's a bridge that is an old railroad track turned into a trail. Which is really crazy that it was on the Monon Trail because that's a heavily trafficked area. Maybe this area of it isn't, but... Yeah, this is different than the Monon that you know about in central Indiana. Maybe the oh, same not rail the same. line, but that they're, they're, they're not all the way connected through that. Oh, okay. The Monon Rail is a massive... I can't tell you how far it goes, but it travels through a big chunk of Indiana. So, you know, they've had a lot of pressure from just society in general and the community to be able to get some arrests in this. And so before they found Richard Allen, there had been at least two to three other arrests in this case, one of which was an older gentleman whose property boarded the area in which the bodies were found. And according to the police, he didn't have a sound alibi. The issue with that, though, is that basically, you know, they searched his entire property and they asked him where he had been. And, you know, he said he had been home at about 4 p.m. that day. This was a very old man. You know, he's retired. All of his days are probably blending in with the next one. And they ended up finding uh, a receipt in his trash that said that he had been in a town gas station like 10 to 20 miles away at 430. So in their eyes, he was lying. However, you know, at the time when I originally read these documents, the police had even acknowledged that if he was at this location at 430, that he wouldn't have been able to commit these murders because uh, he would have been too far. Like it just wouldn't have made possible. It would have been possible. But wow. they were so pressured from the community that, that they actually ended up arresting him anyways. And when he eventually was released, he died of a heart, a heart attack shortly after. So I feel like, you know, they kind of had something to do with that. Not saying that they intentionally made him have a heart attack. But that was a lot of stress for well, someone for sure. to go through that age. I mean, anybody that was even looked at for a second as a possible suspect in this case was immediately vilified. By oh, yeah. Plus the community. community. I mean, I'm sure he had issues outside of just going to jail. Well, imagine being put into that category all because of you happen to have a piece of property that's close to where it happened. Right. I mean, does it make sense that they would look into a person that lived near it? Sure. But uh, for him to publicly have been known as a suspect in, in this case is, I mean, I, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that it, it didn't cause a heart attack, but I'm sure the, the stress the is stress did. significant for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I'm You're terrible. Imagine, you know, he was living alone, you know, your wife probably passed however long ago, you're retired. 
every day is just the same as the next. You know right. what I mean? You're not keeping track of shit. Right. So they ask him where he was on this specific day at this right. specific time, and he's just like, I don't know. I thought I was home at four. Probably either fishing, rocking in my chair, or eating or, dinner at five o'clock. Right. <laughs> and they come to find out, you know, they took that as him lying. They just took it as him lying and not being an old man that, you know, just didn't know the exact time he was home. Right. And I, I wouldn't. Most people wouldn't. Right. So... There was also another man who was a known predator who uses other men's pictures to catfish little girls, and he was arrested. And most people know him in the news. He was the guy who had used, like, an Alaskan police officer's right. photo or whatever to catfish these little girls. And he was actually they, – they found out that he was actually in conversations with these women, with these little girls, before they died. So that's what's really scary is the fact that, you know – if this didn't happen with Richard Allen, this could have happened with so many other people that they were they were all talking to these predators at the same time. Right. Uh, and it's just crazy, you know, how how common they are. Right. You the, know what I mean? Yeah. The, this this is just another example of why I very strict with my daughter on what uh, she's allowed to do on social media. I mean, I feel like most people would like to think it's far fetched for to catch their daughter talking to one predator, much less multiple. You know what I mean? Well, it's what I think what how parents are somewhat naive is they they think they're monitoring it in an effective way or whatever. But the, when oh they're just talking to people their own age, well the predators are pretending to be people their own age. Well, not only I think parents think that their kid will realize like oh no stranger danger that's an adult I'm not going to talk to you. But the thing is is a lot of these kids they think oh this adult wants to talk to me I must be so cool. You know right. I mean? Or this adult pretending to be a fourteen-year-old, oh, or the, just that period, yeah, fourteen-year-old boy that's interested in me, and I'm a girl, and oh, I'm gonna go check out who this guy is, and then now it's a forty-year-old, right? You know? So, like I said, he was in contact with at least one of the girls before they were murdered, and he was suspected to have played a part in the case. Eventually, he was no longer really looked at as a person of interest for the Delphi murders. However, he remained in jail for other charges. Specifically, I think he was hit for like child porn. Yeah, there's something child, child, child related crimes. That right. He was tied to that kind of behavior, interacting with solicitation, minors. Something yeah, something like that. So, I mean, he had been doing this with multiple people. Right. Despite all this, though, prosecutors believe that there's another person not yet identified who was involved in the murder. So they still think that more than Richard Allen did this. And originally, when Richard Allen was arrested, I'm not going to lie, I was thinking that he didn't do it i was thinking that this was another man that was going to be vilified and you know a lot of things the facts of his case just seemed like you know if you had murdered these girls why would you live so close to the area for so long why would you just keep going about your life and he was married a pharmacy tech owned his own home i mean there was nothing about him that seemed like anything other than just a regular old ordinary dude right and living in delphi indiana he ended up he did actually end up confessing to his wife which i'm sure was a real bombshell to her but that, that, that's just what's even crazier is because, you know, this guy was charged. And even when he was first charged, I was thinking, like, you know, it's not fair to to villain villainize this guy and think he did it. He probably didn't do it. He's probably just going to be the third or fourth person to be looked at like this and then have his life ruined for nothing. And then – but that's the thing is, you know, he probably was friends with all of his neighbors that nobody knew this was going on. Everybody thought this was far-fetched. And sure enough, he fucking did it. Yeah. The, well, we don't know. It's still – and it's still proven guilty. He his, did confess. There's, there's, there's a confession. We'll dive into that a little bit. And the defense is working on a strategy for that. <laughs> well, according to him – tough one. He, according to him, he did it. <laughs> <laughs> he, did, he did. There is a, reportedly a confession. Um, I believe it was um, – uh, in a jail phone call to his wife, obviously, 
Um, we see it all time. Clients make that mistake of, I don't know if they just forget it's being recorded. Yeah, I don't know don't how it literally says are. this call is being recorded every time you answer the phone. Or they think, oh, there's no way they're listening to all these calls. That, I think that's what it is. Which, uh, you know, I did this job for, I did that job for almost 10 years. It's true. They don't listen to every call. They listen to the ones they want to listen to. Right. So if you're charged with the death of two teenage girls in Delphi, Indiana, <coughs> they are listening to your calls. Rest assured. Especially for a case that's gotten na- na- nation- nationwide attention. I can't oh, speak for, today. And, and not only that, they're still listening. Even though they got to they're still listening to his calls. Um, you know, when I was in, in Marion County, we had um, law school interns. Basically, every homicide case they have there every single phone call is being listened to by somebody. So everybody who commits a murder in Marion County, like their phone calls are for sure being listened to? Yeah, I, I would say more often than not. So there's sometimes cases that are so airtight. You've got, it's on video, or you have a, a full-blown confession. Yeah, you know, they're you not going to waste the staff. All right. But if it's anything that's even questionable, or if it's a who done it, like they're arguing they didn't do it, somebody else did it, they're listening to the jail phone calls for sure. All right. For sure. So, new documents were released. Allen County Judge Francis Seagull. Seagull. I never, I never put two into Gall. Gall. <laughs> he released 118 court she. documents. That was very sexist. No, I guess that is she. How is that sexist, just not knowing? You Francis just could assumed. Be, oh, yeah, I guess I'm a piece of shit, huh? So, she released 118 court documents Wednesday afternoon in connection to the Delphi murders case. And I have spent all day going through all these documents, and unfortunately, they don't have a transcript of that confession, which I thought there would be. But there was 19 of the original 137 documents in the case that are still sealed. So, I feel like those are the most juicy documents. We were able to get the... Uh, some notes that both Richard wrote, um, that his cellmate wrote. We have the probable cause affidavit. We have some uh, ideas of defenses that you know the defense attorneys are going to mount, and we're going to talk about those uh, files with you after we get through this little part of all the updates about the court documents and you know what's going on in the courts and everything like that. So, in one of the court documents, investigators believe a gun and a knife were used in the murders of German and Williams. The coroner's office has still not said how the girls died. And to me, uh, that's news to me at least because I, I could have swore that they said that they were only shot originally. Well, they once the connection came out that there was a gun, a, a shell casing, casing that matched, they're saying an unfired shell casing that matched Allen's gun, which that's definitely questionable science. Um, but once they announced that, then I think that the media just kind of jumped the assumption that, that, there was that a, they were there shot and killed. Involved. It is new that they believe there was a knife involved. My guess is the fact we don't know exactly how the girls died yet is purposeful because they've said they believe there's someone else involved. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have somebody else involved, then if you, if the investigators have kept facts of the case that are unique to the case secret and they do an interview of somebody and they are starting to give facts that are unique to the case and secret, then you know they're somehow involved. Right. If it's already out there in the public and you're interviewing people and suspects and things of that nature, then and you never know. Did they know it because they read it, or did they know it because they were there? And right. so that's, that's probably why they haven't disclosed the exact cause and nature of death. It does sound it's a gun and a... And a, and a knife, obviously. The Probably don't want the potential other guy to know that they're on to him, too. Because right. Richard could have fled at any moment, and he didn't. Right. And, the, and, <clears throat> and yeah, okay, they, well, obviously, if it's a gun and a knife, you know they were stabbed and shot. Yeah, but you don't know what which ones were which. Right. Who was stabbed where. Were they stabbed or was something slid? Or, or was it just held against them while right, they were forced right. to do and things? Those are details. If, you, if they're not in the public domain, 
well, if they find a witness or they find, you know, if they found a witness, then they can say, okay, this person, we can corroborate this person's story because mm-hmm. they're telling us something that's unique. Nobody else knows. Right. Or if they have a confession, because this is an odd thing, but it's a, it's a real thing. People in jail or people get arrested and are charged with serious crimes, they'll sometimes confess to doing other notorious crimes because they're already in trouble just to get the attention. It's mm-hmm. sort of a weird sickness. <clears throat> but if they've kept details back like this and they have somebody that's pulling one of those things and they don't know those details or they tell the details of how they died and it's not consistent with what they know, then they know it's somebody that's not, you know, they don't have the right person. All right. Because that does happen. So originally, investigators spoke with Richard Allen in 2017. And this is these are the things that made me think that originally he didn't do it because he admitted to being on the trail between 1.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. on February 13th, 2017. He said he parked at the old Farm Bureau building, which was later confirmed to be the former Child Protective Services Farm building. Bureau. Bureau. What the fuck ever? Delphi? Delphi? Is it? <laughs> you don't even know, do you? Now I've confused Is it you. Delphi? <laughs> yes. Okay, I was saying Delphi, which that's still a stupid way to pronounce it. Like, Delphi is the right way. But that's that's another podcast episode on we can debate semantics. <laughs> so that CPS building, that was a... Um, a big part of the investigation because they knew that the person who had done this most likely had parked their vehicle there and there had been reports of a car that had been like parked backwards or something and there usually isn't vehicles there and it somewhat matched the description of richard allen's car but right. it, was, it was nebulous enough that it wasn't for sure right um he said he saw three girls at the freedom bridge and he told investigators that he did not speak with the girls as he walked from the freedom bridge to the high bridge now he says he saw three girls. Maybe he was doing that to throw their trail off since there was only two, or maybe there was another one that split off and went home. That's things that we don't necessarily know yet. Alan was again interviewed by investigators on October 13th, 2022. He again told them he was on the trail February 13th, 2017. Alan said he saw girls on the trails east of the Freedom Bridge before he went to the Monon High Bridge to watch the fish. Investigators executed a search warrant of Alan's home that same day where they found jackets, boots, knives, and guns. The Indiana State Police Laboratory performed an analysis on one of Allen's guns, a Sig Sauer Model P226. Investigators confirmed an unspent round found within two feet of German's body came from this gun, which, as Brad said, is kind of iffy science. Well, and, the, and that's one of the things we've gotten in the in the pleadings that have been filed. The defense is attacking that. They've already filed some motions to try to keep that out, saying that it's junk science. Um, you know, anybody that's dealt with firearms and... and um, ammunitions and and testing of that nature knows that that's it's definitely that's an interesting it's an interesting issue at best Uh, right because normally the identifiers on a firearm or on a bullet comes from when it goes through the barrel of the gun there's rifling the the rifling yeah and that rifling causes there to be perforations or marks on the bullet that is uh that will tie it and unique to that specific barrel of that specific gun yeah the inside of a barrel of a gun has like the equivalent of fingerprints right and it leaves it on each bullet and each uh fired casing the striking of the case the striking of the casing also uh but this is an unfired casing they're saying was either ejected from the magazine right so it it never it got through the rifling that's a really that's there will be plenty of experts on the other side of that where they would say that that's not enough you can maybe yeah, I say, okay, this kind of gun can fire this bullet. But I just find it odd that they really can make every single barrel somehow like identifiable from the next because there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of guns. Well, think of how many fingerprints there are. 
Yeah, but I mean, who is keeping track of oh we've made there are. we've who's keeping track of oh we've made this design we can't make like these are different companies they're not all working yeah together. there's you something know what I mean in, yeah but there's something in the ri- rifling of each model of firearm that is uniquely tweaked in the manufacturing process on purpose <coughs> so it it is, that part of it is a very good reliable science you can always get into different arguments too because they'll do uh, testing on bullets that are damaged. And sometimes there'll be enough markings to make a a um, conclusory statement that they were matches. Sometimes there aren't, and sometimes two different experts can disagree. If you got a clean bullet that's you know a through and through, that didn't go through bone or or right, smash into a wall. Yeah, I say smash to a wall and stuff, and, and crunch down into a little nothing. Right, uh, and you can usually get a pretty pretty good consensus that there, there's enough markings to make an identification. But it's it, I don't know people people don't necessarily know this or do know this, but uh, Two different fingerprint experts can look at a fingerprint and not agree that it's a match because it's subjective. Right. They, they can see five unique points on a finger and see that same five unique points on the fingerprint and say that's a match. And another fingerprint of an expert may say, no, that's not unique enough. There's not enough matches. I can't say it's inclusive. Right. So you think it's the same way when it comes to, like, rifling on a bullet and whatnot? When when there's damage. <clears throat> when there's not damage, I think you can pretty well get a consistent. But when there's damage, sometimes they'll say there's just not enough. And some experts may go a little further and say, yeah, I do see enough here to, to, to make it. You know, now that I think about it, the fact that they put so much emphasis on this unspent bullet makes me wonder, like, why wouldn't they have used the bullets that were actually shot? Like maybe they never got them. Maybe they, if they were still in the bodies, surely they would have gotten them. They did say it was a forty caliber. Well, and you're you're assuming that a gun and a knife has evolved. That it was it was fired. It didn't. You know. Yeah, I guess it can be evolved the, and not. Yeah. Okay. Used the gun to threaten him, and then actually used the knife to kill him, or hit him over the head with the barrel of the gun, and then stabbed him to death. You just don't know. It's pretty fucked up, and you have the choice to shoot or knife well, someone. Remember, and you choose to knife them. Remember down the hill. Right, the famous yeah. recorded statement yeah, that could easily be him pointing a gun and saying down the hill, and then he ends up stabbing him. Right now, you've used both, but you didn't actually fire it. If you remember too, it said that their bodies was arranged in a way where it seemed like it was like some sort of pornographic display. Is what the right. investigators made it out. To well, and they like. said they found the unspent shell casing by one of the bodies. Yeah, two feet from. Uh, I think it said it was Libby's body. Yeah, I don't remember. But yeah, Libby German's two feet from her body, but. You don't hear anything about any spent casings. Or that's any that, that's so, what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, there's a decent chance that maybe the gun wasn't actually. Or maybe it jammed, and that's why. Maybe went to the knife. Yeah, so you're right. It, it, it would be one of two things. They either didn't requ- they either didn't recover a bullet, um, or they did recover a bullet and was too damaged to um, to make an identification. Which that actually happens pretty common. Bullets get very damaged when they go through. Bone tissue and all those, all those kind of things that they get crushed. Right. They yeah, get they get smashed. messed up, shattered. Yeah. So two weeks later, Allen voluntarily went to the Indiana State Police post, and he told investigators he never allowed anyone to use or borrow the Sig Sauer Model Two Two Six. Which another thing, why would you say that if you are an investigated, if you are being investigated, and well, I don't. You I, did do it. Like, why would you say that? I, I think one of the things that is at least starting to emerge a little bit is that perhaps Richard Allen isn't a rocket scientist. Uh, you know, if you know you're being interviewed about the possible murder of two girls and you're saying you didn't do it, uh, but they're asking, they, they're telling you that your gun did, even if it's true that never ever used it, would why wouldn't you just either shut up 
Or I mean, say it was that's something we see a else. lot, though, here. I mean, I've only worked here for two years, and I mean, I've seen countless cases where the person would have had either a lot better deal or would have outright won if they just shut the fuck up. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, if you're... Granted, I wish this guy gets arrested and all Well, that, yeah, you, know. and, and you have to think, too, if you're, if, if you're truly innocent or if you're trying to convince the police that you're innocent, you're, you're also going to act like... Yeah, it's my gun. No one ever used it because it wasn't the one that did it. You right. Know what I mean, as opposed to thinking, oh, I think Maybe so that's was my the... gun. It'd be better off for me to say that yeah. five or six of my buddies bought But then they're going to ask you, well, who you, who, yeah. who borrowed it? And and, you know, and start then, investigating all your buddies. Right. And so you're, you, you, you're going down a rabbit hole that can get real dangerous there, too. So, um, yeah, obviously, as all defense attorneys will say, it wouldn't have been much of a, better for him just to have been quiet. Right. Um, and obviously he has had problems with that even after having attorneys. So obviously this last part is subjective, but a Carroll County Sheriff's Department detective who has been part of the investigation since it started believes the evidence gathered shows that Allen is the man seen on the video from German's phone who forced the girls down the hill. Now, from the pictures that I've seen from before Allen went to jail, uh, yeah, the, the picture that we had originally seen of that man down the hill seemed to be a little bit bulkier. Yeah. He seemed a little bit on the fatter side. And maybe a little taller even. Yeah, and I will say before he went to jail, he more fit that build. Now that he's in jail, he honestly looks like your stereotypical like homeless man drug addict. Like he looks, yeah, he looks, he looks mentally ill. Yeah, like jail's not been kind to him. It's not really it's kind not. to anybody. But now how he currently looks, he wouldn't really fit that description. No, but I definitely would say he's closer to fitting that description before he was arrested, which right. makes more sense. Right. So. Now we'll start diving into some of these documents. So the first one that we have is one from Richard Allen himself, and this was to the court. So he said, in the cause listed above, I, Richard M. Allen, hereby throw myself at the mercy of the court. I am begging to be provide to be provide with legal assistance in a public defender or whatever help is available. At my initial hearing on October 28th, 2022, I asked to find representation for myself. However, at the time, I had no clue how expensive it would be just to talk to someone. I also did not realize what my wife and I's immediate financial situation was going to be. We have both been forced to immediately abandon employment, myself due to incarceration, and my wife for her personal safety. She has had to abandon our house for her own safety. What little reserves there is failed to even maintain the original residence. Again, I throw myself at the mercy of the court. Please provide me whatever assistance you may. Thank you for your time in this most urgent matter. That was early, that was early on in the case before. That was two days, yeah, yeah, two three days into it. Now, two things that I think are interesting, or just something to mention about. One, I feel terrible for his wife. Oh yeah, I yeah. cannot imagine, I especially when she had that confession or what she's doing now. But I mean, you, I, you would just want to like move across the country. Secondly, I find it Change funny. your last name and right. start over. Just start over. I mean, she's already yeah. old, though, at that point. I know, you think you just man. ride out the storm? Yeah. Uh, and I also think it's funny when you see people, like, beg the court for uh, an attorney when, like, they're legally obligated. Yeah, they have to yeah. do that. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like you don't have to throw can't yourself afford when you get one. Yeah. All you got to do is say you're poor. Can't afford it. So this one is a little bit more interesting. I'm not going to talk about all of it because – you know, th- this could be one of two things. This could be something that's actually serious, or it could be something where this guy's trying to tie himself to Richard Allen to uh, get more, whether it be attention on his case or to get his name out there, whatever it may be. But this is uh, someone who's in the same unit as Richard Allen. He writes, I am an inmate, I am an inmate at Westville Correctional Facility in the same unit that Richard Allen is being housed in. 
and awaiting trial. Richard Allen is being abused and mistreated along with other inmates in Westville Control Unit. Restrictive housing. Sorry, it's really, these guys write really sloppily, so it's hard to know when the sentence stops and ends, or stops and starts. There are corrupt officers and ranking officers calling Richard Allen a kid killer, teasing him that he has a visit from his family, assuming that he doesn't actually. Phone is ringing on his GTL tablet, inmates in cells, and then he actually lists the cell number and their name, and there's multiple. There's one, two, three, four, and he says they're all threatening to kill Richard Allen and telling him to kill himself, and these inmates have made these comments in front of Warden John Gallipo. Unsure exactly. These, Like I said, this writing is really sloppy. Also said that he made the comments in front of ranking officers. Ranking officers and officers is how he put it, so I'm assuming he's putting discretion between the two. The staff has recorded on camera these inmates making these threats and suggestions to kill himself, and he has done nothing to stop it. He says, I have proof and evidence of assaults by ranking officers and officers on inmates. Abuse and mistreatment and grievances and the governor's office of ombudsman, Baru? Unsure what that is. That have been mishandled and covered ombudsman. up. Ombudsman. What's that? Uh... It's just they're usually administrative officials that have some sort of decision-making powers. So that bureau that have been mishandled and covered up because the Indiana Department of Corrections is allowed to. Huh? You said bureau. I just said bureau. I know, but you said bureau. Covered up because the Indiana Department of Corrections is allowed to police itself within their Office of Investigation and Intelligence. I recently sent letters to the U.S. Department of Justice from Indiana State Representatives Dr. Vernon G. Smith and from the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee concerning the DOT and FBI. Why is – oh, DOJ. I was about to say, why is the DOT, DOT. involved in this? <laughs> Mishandling complaints on the Indiana Department of Correction and their facilities. Now – He starts getting a little far field. Yeah, now it gets a little far this. field. He starts saying on March 21st, 2023, he tried to commit suicide while he was in the same cell as Richard Allen. And on April 9th, he did the same thing. He says that he's been in correspondence with the New York Times investigative reporter and their team at the University School of Law, but he he just says at the University School of Law. Mm, that's a broad, That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of possible schools. That's a lot of possible schools. <laughs> um, so you know that's that's odd. Uh, he's asking the letter to be forwarded to this letter to the judge in Richard Allen's case and to his attorneys because I have wrote to the organizations mentioned to expose the assaults, abuse, and mistreatment. So, so that was a wrote to the clerk. Right. And so, as, as we'll talk about here a little bit more, too, I mean, you know, as a defense attorney, if you get a, if you have a client that gives a confession um, and it's to a detective and the detective is, you know, sat down and sort of browbeat your client for five or six hours or they've been adamantly maintaining their innocence the entire time. And then the client sort of caves and gives like, a kind of a quasi confession just because they don't know how else to make it end. That's something you can work with. That's something you can usually, you know, make a pretty good argument that the jury um, uh, shouldn't shouldn't consider the confession that it was pressure and right. it was coerced. And you know, a lot of people who have never been in these situations think, "Oh, well, if I didn't do it, I would never confess." But you know, right. when you're locked in a room for twelve hours and you're maybe and you've been saying water, over and over again, you didn't do it. Yeah, and I mean, they're using every manipulation tactic in the book. They're screaming at you. They're being nice to you. They're threatening you. They're doing all of these things. You know, you're going to be better off if you say what really happened. If right. you said what you thought really happened, swear 10 times. they'll help you. Right. Swear that this will make your life easier. You know, at some point, it's just like. Fuck, like yeah, and 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 it is a defense where you can deal with that. But when you 
Make a confession over the phone to your wife. Right, you're not under duress. Yeah, that's a tough. That's a tough thing. And so, um, part of the reason that documents in the record is the the defense is trying to make the argument that he was he has been treated so poorly inside of the jail and mentally harassed and berated and beaten down to the point that he is insane and he's not making logical decisions and anything he said during that time period is not trustworthy or reliable um and which so, is, that's fair i mean even the most sane person can probably go crazy in jail that shit's really inhumane yeah it, it, jails are tough places period but it's really a tough place when you're the center of attention yeah and everybody's you know accusing you of doing a heinous inmates crime. guards and, and, and the warden even, you know, saying well, you're a kid a, killer. And inside of a prison, there's... Granted, know, if he did do it, he deserves it, but Well, but, it, 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 but if you're inside of a prison, if you have allegations against you based that are on children, uh, it doesn't fly well there. Yeah. And there's certain lines that most, even the hardest of uh, criminals who maybe killed somebody in a beef over drugs or something, be like, that's a line I draw, you know? And so... Well, it, most of their lines are drawn when it comes to sexual offenses against women, children. You know, I, I as as much as a shitty person can be shitty, you know, right. most of them still think that that shit crosses the line. Right, right. And so, to imagine he's getting this kind of treatment in jail that this this inmate's describing probably isn't far off. Probably, oh, yeah. uh, pr- probably pretty accurate. And so they're trying to build up a defense. Um, is trying to establish that this confession either is so unreliable it shouldn't be admissible, or so unreliable that the jury sh- a, sh- a jury shouldn't believe it. But that's going to be a, that's a significant significant uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, especially when the community wants there to be someone who oh, okay. they want to hold us somebody responsible. You know what I mean? It's supposed to be innocent, proven guilty, but they you know. I mean, look at the look at the guy who got arrested for this the first time. Right, he was definitely yeah, not innocent vilified. until proven guilty. Right. He and was so, guilty until he proved himself innocent. So it, it, you know, he created a tough, a very tough hurdle for his attorneys to deal with. If this confession is what it's being purported to be, obviously, we haven't heard it. You can read between the lines a little bit by the fact that defense counsel is filing so many uh, motions and things surrounding his mental well-being at the time he said it. Presumably, the words he said weren't very helpful. Now, now this is what's odd to me is because he had a public defender, and usually they're just so overworked and busy. Are they just putting more attention to his case because it requires it or what? Yeah, there's been special funds set aside for the defense of him in this case because they know that the extra effort they're going to have to put into it. So the attorneys that were appointed on this are being paid differently than a regular public defender would be. Okay. Does that yeah. make... It's based much, on the hours they're spending on it. Does it make much of a difference in terms of their pay? Like, do you think it's oh, still significantly shit? more. Oh, okay. So... Yeah. And now it's not like... Not what somebody probably would... Not what somebody would pay to defend Richard Allen privately, but when you're billing hourly, and even if it's, you know, I don't know. I don't know what rate they're being paid. $90 an hour, $120 an hour, whatever it is. Um, most public defenders, people don't probably know this they're paid flat fees per year to handle whatever number of cases they get you might get twenty four thousand dollars a year to handle 110 cases well that's like 200 bucks a case that's not good yeah no can you imagine doing this case with that yeah that happens you know the the, the public defender will get a murder and and may might get paid more if it goes to trial but to handle the case do all the work all these these attorneys are doing now and you don't get paid anything extra it's tough. They, do, do you think because of that they're as invested as like a defense attorney here would be? 
like invested <laughs> in their question. client getting off and whatnot. Yeah, that's a question we get all the time. Why, why, why hire a private attorney over a public defender? So the ethical obligations to your client are the same. Uh, the oath you've taken to do your job is the same. The amount of resources and time you can devote to a case um, when you're doing a, a public defender caseload can't possibly be the same because you can't afford to take as few cases as somebody, a private attorney can. Right. I mean, and you so, don't have a choice as a public defender. They just give you what you get. You get what you get and, and it can keep coming. You know, mm -hmm. if you get assigned a murder case and your contract is a $25,000 contract for the whole year, that's a that's a lot to take on. I mean, in I mean, murder one cases, murder case here would encompass that. Yeah, it's going to be forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars to do a murder case privately, most for most private counsel. So think of that: your whole contract for the entire caseload you have is half of what you'd get normally for that one case. That's tough. I mean, and in it, so it's not uh, the standard is not that you get perfect counsel or that you get fantastic counsel; it's that you get competent counsel. That's what the standard is. And so are they going to all get competent counsel with public defenders? Yes. Uh, do the, does Richard Allen have good counsel? Absolutely. The yeah, I would say the, with all the files I've seen, that that's what made me surprised because I was like, this is a public defender, and he seems like he's acting like yeah, a private they, attorney. Well, they got two good public – and there are good public defenders 100%. Uh, it, it, the other thing I tell my clients all the time, the difference between a public attorney and a private attorney is you get a pick, right? A public defender, you get who you get, and, and you're going to mostly have to deal with it. There are some exceptional public defenders out there. How do they, they usually go about picking? Uh, so. In a case like this, it's so high profile, and they know it's going to be high profile. It's going to be appealed, all those kind of things. Um, everybody in the system, the prosecutor, the judge, everybody in the system would prefer to have good counsel for him because it makes it way more likely, whatever result they get, that's guilty, not guilty, something in between, it's going to be upheld by the Court of Appeals because it was done well. So they'd much rather do this than do it once than do it and redo it because the defense counsel didn't do their job Makes sense. well. Yeah. So it's not surprising that they would put extra resources into this to make sure he has appropriate defense. Um, is that a tough pill to swallow probably for some families whose uh, loved ones justice. facing something yeah. very serious and they don't get this amount of attention paid to their case? Probably so. Um, but the flip side of that is this case is getting paid a lot more attention to it from the state too. Right. Way more. So one big thing that we talked about last episode was that he had filed a motion for change of venue, and we didn't think that was going to work at all. And surprisingly, it didn't work. But Quasi worked. Quasi did work. Uh, in January of this year, they actually agreed that, um, a, that they will reach a partial agreement that it's going to be held in, what was it, Carroll County? Trial stayed in Carroll County. Yep, stayed in Carroll County. They could select a jury from two different counties. Yep, and those counties could be St. Joseph County or Allen County, which I'm pretty sure both those border Carroll they're, County, they're right? North, uh, no, Allen County is Fort Wayne. Um, St. Joseph County is South Bend. So there's, uh, I used to do that drive. Probably must be annoying as hell for the jurors. Two or three counties in between. Uh, yeah, once they select a jury, and assume this goes to jury, likely will. Um, and there's a maybe not. There could always be a plea, but assuming it is, this jury is probably going to be brought down to Carroll County and kept. Not probably. They're going to be kept in Carroll County until trial's over. Um, Indiana is not California. This trial will probably be tried in a couple of weeks, not months at a time. But those jurors are going to, you know, have to walk away from their jobs and, and their loved ones and spend a couple of weeks in, in Delphi, Indiana. Right. Uh, Alan and 
Delphi and and St. Joe are probably I don't know maybe an hour hour and 15 minutes away from those two counties. You think they just stick them up in a hotel or would they make them make that drive every day? No, they'll put them in a hotel. They they may not sequester them, they may. So people think, well, they're being sequestered. Sequestered means they are literally on lockdown. They don't get to watch TV. They don't get to interact with the press. They can't talk to their family. Uh, putting them in a, a in a hotel so they don't have to drive back and forth to their hometown, which is going to be an hour away or so every day, is just a efficiency thing. Right. And not only efficiency thing, to think, too. Keeps it more impartial. Well, also keeps them from, hey, this juror is running late. Yeah. Or this juror's car breaks down and gets a flat. Now you got to pause the whole trial until that juror can get there. So, right, right. Uh, you know, it kind of gives a... Plus, I'm sure if I was part of this case and I had to drive an hour to it every day, I'd be listening to the radio about what's going on at least. Well, and and also the gas. I mean, that'd be costly, oh, yeah. costly for the juror, so especially how gas prices are now. So they get a state hotel, it'll be paid for by the government, and they'll get their meals um, and whatever the little bitty pay you get for being a juror. It's next to nothing. Um and and have a uh, I guess a, a vacation in Delphi, Indiana. Yeah, fantastic vacation. <laughs> yeah, right. That that was one. So this is part of what Brad was talking about earlier. How you know they're trying to talk about his uh, attorney is trying to mount a defense that his mental health is deteriorating. In May nineteenth of this year, a subpoena was released, and it says that you are hereby commanded to summon the Indiana Department of Corrections, CO Westville Correctional Facility, with the address. To permit attorney Bradley A. Rossi and attorney Andrew J. Baldwin and their agents to enter onto the Westville Correctional Facility for the purpose of inspecting, measuring, surveying, and photographing the individual cell blocks and surrounding facility wherein defendant Richard Allen has been continuously incarcerated since November of 2022. Said event shall occur within 30 days of this issuance of this subpoena as referenced below. So Yeah, so they're, so they're going to – they've been asked – they've requested to inspect um, – you know, they're going to look at the measurements, the the conditions. Um, they're they're going to do every they're doing everything they can to try to undermine the validity of this con, this this confession. Show that it, 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 you know if you get one from a detective, you're going to argue that it was coerced that um, that they uh, browbeat them into it. But when they did it to their wife, you got to come up with something else. And what you're right. The strategy that they're trying to employ is he was so mentally tortured that he was said things that were nonsensical that he didn't mean he maybe didn't even know what he was saying and so part of their theory in, in, in trying to prove that is to do this inspection and for themselves uh, be able to see and, and, and uh, document the conditions that, that Richard's been dealing with so attorney Bradley A. Rossi in the next document uh, request for production to non-party he actually requests that he is the one to fulfill that subpoena and he asked if the documents can be mailed to you know his address or his firm's address, so that way he can be the one that goes in there with his agents, as as they say, to inspect the cell and the pod and all of it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they've been given money for private investigators as well on the defense side. What would they investigate though? Uh, whatever parts of the defense they want, uh, you know. Um, this would be one of those things. They're going to be you know because the attorney can't go in there, document the stuff, and then testify themselves. So they're going to have to have somebody with them that mm. they can call as a witness to testify to present whatever evidence, evidence they want about the quality or the lack thereof of the conditions that um, that Mr. Allen's been uh, been put through. So now the juicy part that I'm sure everybody's been wanting to hear, we've got the probable cause affidavit, and it's pretty long. 
So let's get started on it. A lot of this, you know, a lot of you guys already know, but it says that on February 14th, 2017, victim one and victim two were found deceased in the woods approximately 0.2 miles northeast of the Monon High Bridge in Carroll County. Their bodies were located on the north side of the Deer Creek. At the time, the Monon High Bridge Trail was an approximately one-mile gravel trail terminating at the Monon High Bridge. The Monon High Bridge is an abandoned railroad trestle approximately 0.25 miles long, spanning the Deer Creek and Deer Creek Valley on the southeast east end of the trail. Now, all of this next paragraph is just explaining what it looks like. They put these things in the probable cause so that way, especially when someone else is reading it later, whether it be the prosecutor, the defense, the judge, the, the jury – they get a better idea of what's going on, what what the area looked like, how it may have looked, how the crime scene may have looked, as well as, you know, they're going to have photos and whatnot as well. And honestly, in big cases like this, it's uh, sort of just beefing things up. You know. Right. Make, the, make as many documents as possible. You want, well, you don't want a one-page probable cause affidavit in a murder. So it says through interviews, reviews of electronic records, and review of footy at the Hoosier Harvest Store. Investigators believe victim one and victim two were dropped off across from the Mears farm at 1.49 p.m. on February 13th. So that means they were killed, like, within about two hours of being there. Like, they were right. killed pretty quickly. Pretty quick. And and I don't think I've seen anything that talks about what the length of this trail is. But, uh, um, you know, from all reports, it wasn't bad weather or anything like that. So it's, it's well, I don't know. Well, that video we've seen, it was pretty clear weather for the yeah. most part. So it's kind of odd how, how un. Either this wasn't a very popular trail or this time of day it wasn't very popular. There just wasn't a whole lot of other people around. So next it d- discusses how a video from victim two's phone shows that at 2.13, so literally 15 minutes after they got there. Right. And victim two encountered a male subject on the southeast portion of the Monon High Bridge. The male ordered the girls, guys, down the hill. That's the video that we had seen. Right. Down the hill. Right. And I think we actually may have played that on our last podcast where we tried to and we weren't able to get the sounds one of one or the other. After that, no outgoing communications were found on victims two phones. So they were actually killed within probably thirty minutes of getting there. Which is, can you imagine dropping off your children somewhere and they're dead within thirty minutes? No, I mean, yeah, yeah. As a parent, you would just look back on that day a thousand different Blame ways yourself. and be like, how or why didn't I do this? Or, gosh, I shouldn't have trusted them to go there. Or, you know, who knows? Maybe they weren't supposed to go there and they're supposed to be going to a store. You know, no. There would be a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. Now, the part that we had seen of that video was already edited and it had just given a small portion of the guy saying right. guys down the hill because they were just trying to figure out who this guy was it states here that the video recovered from victim two phone shows that victim one walking southeast on the monon high bridge while a male subject wearing a dark jacket and jeans walks behind her as the male subject approaches victim one and victim two one of the victims mentions gun near the end of the video a male is seen and heard telling the girls guys down the hill the girls then proceed down the hill and the video ends a still photograph taken from the video and the guys down the hill audio was sub- subsequently released to the public to assist investigators in ass- identifying the male. I, can, I was getting my tongue tied all on that. So their deaths were ruled homicides. They had found uh, a forty caliber unspent round less than two feet away from their body between victim one and victim two's body, and the round was unspent and had extraction marks on it. So that's where, you know... That's it, what they're saying. They used to match it to the, to the right. gun. Right. It had been chambered marks. out of the gun, basically. So in something like that, you may do that to scare the person. If there's already a round in the gun and you rack it again, it's going to spend. It's gonna yeah. shoot out. Or maybe you don't know whether it's... Yeah, or you don't know. Not once, you do it just in case. Right. Um, and Or it gets jammed, and that's the only way. And, you know, but funny... But it's an extraction mark, man. I, mm. 
first time I ever went to the range, I had a buddy, and I uh, handed him my gun so he could shoot it. And he shot it once, and then he racked it again, thinking you had to rack it every time. And, <laughs> you know, a, didn't realize it was a semi-automatic. Right, and it fires out <laughs> the unspent round. But those marks are, are what the detectives are going off of to try and attach it to the Sig Sauer P223. Interviews were conducted with three juveniles. Their names are redacted. They were they advised that they were on the Monon High Bridge Trail on February 13th. They advised that they were walking on the trail towards Freedom Bridge to go home when they encountered a male walking from Freedom Bridge towards the Monon High Bridge. They described the male as kind of creepy and advised he was wearing like blue jeans, a like really light blue jacket, and he, his hair was gray, maybe a little brown, and he did not really show his face. She advised that the jacket was a duck canvas type jacket. Blank advised she said hi to the male, but he just glared at them. She recalled him being at all black and had something covering his mouth. She described him as not very tall with a bigger build. She said he was not bigger than 5'10". Blank advised he was wearing a black hoodie, black jeans, and black boots. She stated he had his hands in his pockets. Blank showed investigators photographs she took on her phone while she was on the trail that day. The photographs included a photo of the Monon High Bridge taken at 1243 and another one taken at 126 of the bench east of the Freedom Bridge. Blank advised after she took a photo of the bench, they started walking back towards Freedom Bridge. She advised that's when they encountered the man who matched the description of the photograph taken from Victim 2 video. They described the man she encountered on the, mail, on the trail as wearing a blue or black windbreaker jacket. She advised the jacket had a collar and he had his hood up from the clothing underneath his jacket. She advised he was wearing a baggy uh, jeans and was taller than her. She advised her head came up to approximately his shoulder. She advised that she said hi to the man and he had said nothing back. She stated he was walking with a purpose, like he knew where he was going. She stated that he had his hands in his pockets and kept his hands down. She also stated that she did not get a good look at his face, but believed him to be a white male. The girls advised after encountering the male that they continued their walk across Freedom Bridge and the old railroad bridge over Old State Road 25. Now, so, uh, let me interject just a little bit there. That That's an incredible amount of detail from a eyewitness. Um, that's uh, It makes you wonder if he was like... Oh, wait, because remember he said he had seen three people originally. Right. I wonder if that's who he was referencing right. who he saw. Right, and yeah, it's interesting because... Uh, Makes you wonder if he was like calculating in his head if he should go for them. Well, there's a lot of studies about the trustworthiness of eyewitnesses, and they're not all very, they're not very favorable. Um, they're, not, uh, they're not usually super reliable, but that's a lot of detail. It'd be interesting to know... Um, you know how much of that you know if they, if they take this this young lady and they put him put her up to Richard Allen as she's shoulder height you know is, how accurate was she on all this detail well I mean if she's a young girl she'd probably grown since then well that's true too yeah, yeah. you know what I mean and yeah, what, what I wonder because it says that their descriptions had matched the photograph right and had matched the video I wonder if the video was released before they interviewed these juveniles because then they would know what yeah, to say. Yeah, they might have been. They may have been um, uh, thrown off, or not thrown off, but biased by the what they'd already seen. Right. And that's something. Because some know, people, some, something you don't ever want to do when you're doing identififications. You don't want them to see the, you know, the evidence they do have. I, you know, when you hear about show up IDs where somebody comes to the scene and says, "Yeah, that's the guy that did it." Well, you've brought them to the scene of the crime, and that guy's standing there. That's a huge bias. Right. And he was in that psychologically, location. Psychologically, right. Whereas what normally you do is you take a six pack of strangers, put them in front of them. One of them is the suspect, and you see can they they pick them out. So this is kind of along those lines. If they did see video of it, although the video quality is not great. No, no, it's terrible. So to say it was like taken with like a flip phone or something. Yeah, so it'd be really interesting to be able to compare what she said to what they found. With right, Richard Allen. 
So they had also spoke with another person who advised that they were on the trails about this same time. So even though that there wasn't as many eyewitnesses, it's starting to seem like there was some eyewitnesses. You know, this person says that they were on the trail or they were were on a vehicle traveling eastbound by the trail at 146 towards the entrance. Blank advised she saw four juvenile females walking on the bridge over Old State Road 25 as she was driving underneath her way to park. Blank advised that there were no other cars parked across from the Mears farm when she parked. So that means that at the time, I'm pretty sure that uh, Richard Allen was not there yet. Right. Uh, or at least his car was not there yet. Well, that's what the state's going to say. Right. She advised she walked to the Monon High Bridge and observed a male matching the one from Victim 2 video. She described the male she saw as a white male wearing blue jeans and a blue jean jacket. So that makes you wonder where the car ended up going. You know what I mean? If it wasn't where originally they said it was. Right. She advised he was standing on the first platform of the Monon High Bridge approximately 50 feet from her. She advised she turned around at the bridge and continued her walk. She walked approximately halfway between the bridge and the parking area across from Mears Farm, and she passed two girls walking towards the Monon High Bridge. She advised she believed the girls were victim one and victim two. Video from Hoosier Harvest Store, Harvest Store shows that at 1.49 p.m., a white car matching vehicle traveling away from the entrance across from the Mears Farm. Blank advised she finished her walk and saw no other adults other than the male on the bridge. Her vehicle is seen on a Hoosier Harvest Store video at 2.14 p.m., leaving westbound from the trails. Blank advised that when she was leaving, the, she noted that a vehicle was parked in an old manner in an odd manner at the old Child Protective Services building. She said it was not odd for vehicles to be parked there, but she noticed it was odd because of the manner it was parked, backed in near the back of the building. Investigators received a tip from Blank in which he stated he was on his way on State Road 25 around 2.10 on February 13th, he observed a purple PT cruiser or a small SUV type vehicle parked on the south side of the old CPS building. He stated it appears as though it was backed in as if to conceal the license plate of the vehicle. Both people drew diagrams of where they saw the vehicle parked and their diagrams generally matched as to the area the vehicle was parked and the manner in which it was parked. Blank advised he remembered seeing a small collared dark vehicle parked at the CPS building. He described it as possibly being a smart car, which are like those really small cars that are severely yeah, dangerous. I think it- didn't they end up saying Richard Allen had a Ford Escape? I, I don't remember them saying. I don't know if they said anything yeah. about what car he had. As I recall, the the car he had loosely could have been seen as this type, that type of a car. Right. So, investigators also spoke with, also redacted. All these names are redacted, so that's why I'm saying blank who stated that she was traveling east on 300 North on February 13th, 2022, and observed a male subject walking west on the north side of 300 North, away from the Monon High Bridge. Blank advised that the male subject was wearing a blue color jacket and blue jeans and was muddy and bloody. She further stated that it appeared he had gotten into a fight. Investigators were able to determine from watching the video from the Hoover Harvest store that Blank was traveling on County Road 300 North at approximately 3.57 p.m. So it seems like at about 4 o'clock he was walking away from all this. Yeah, they're they're st- they're just trying to establish a timeline. And I will say, yeah. now like when when the old man says he's home at four o'clock, right. and apparently this man was walking away at three fifty seven. Right. You know, that, maybe that's why they were more biased towards thinking he did definitely it. Definitely somebody to look at for sure. You know what I mean? So through interviews, electronic data, photographs, and video from the Hoosier Harvest Store, investigators determined that there were other people on the trail that day after two thirteen p.m. Those people were interviewed. None of those individuals encountered the male subject reference above, witnessed by the juvenile girls, Blank and Blake. Further, none of those individuals witnessed victim one and victim two. And investigators reviewing prior tips encountered a tip narrative from an officer who interviewed Richard M. Allen in 2017. So a tip narrative from an officer, is this an officer just giving another tip? Like, 
Well, back at this time when they originally were doing the investigation, they had opened a bunch of tip lines where people could call in tips 24 hours a day. And then the officers had to listen to them and go through them and, and investigate every single tip that came in. So that's what they're referring to there in terms of the tip line. Okay. So Mr. Allen, it says that the narrative stated that Mr. Allen was on the trail between 1330 and 1530. So in military time, that's 130 to, what is that, 330? Yeah. He parked at the old farm brew building and walked to the new Freedom Bridge. While at the Freedom Bridge, he saw three females, and he noted one was taller and had brown or black hair. He did not remember description, nor did he speak with them. He walked from the Freedom Bridge to the High Bridge. He did not see anybody, although he stated he was watching a stock ticker on his phone as he walked. He stated there were vehicles parked at the High Bridge trail ahead, however, did not pay attention to them. He did not take any photos or video. This makes me think that Richard Allen sent this in, because how would he know that he was watching a stock ticker? Right, the tip line, yeah. There's, And that was something that Alan was saying originally, was that he was walking down the trail looking at stocks on his phone. Right, right. That, that was something that he said originally that we right. talked about the first time. Right, 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 right. And they, they list, you know, potential follow-up information. Who were the three girls walking in the area of Freedom Bridge? Investigators believe Mr. Allen was referring to the former Child Protective Services building as it used to be the Farm Bureau building in the area, nor had there been. Investigators believe the females he saw included blank and blank, and due to the time they were leaving the trail, the time he reported getting to the trail, and the descriptions the f- three females grave- gave. Inves- investigators discovered Richard Allen owned two vehicles in 2017, a 2016 black Ford Focus and a t- 2006 gray Ford 500. It was Ford Focus. That's what it was. It's not really an SUV, though. No, the Ford Focus, though, I mean... It's a hatchback. Yeah. So PT Cruiser, Ford Focus, maybe? Yeah. 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 Investigators observed a vehicle that resembled Allen's 2016 Ford Focus on the Hoosier Harvest Store video at 127 traveling westbound on County Road 300 North in front of the Hoosier Harvest Store, which coincided with his statement that he arrived around 1.30 p.m. at the trails. Seems like Hoosier Harvest Store is the real winner in this. <laughs> like They've been so pivotal uh, winner, in all of this. Winner or loser, I'm not sure which. I guess, no, what is it? Uh, any... any uh, uh, what is it? Any uh, notoriety or any advertising is better than no advertising. Or right. Saying is yeah. I wonder if this has helped or hurt their business because <laughs> seems like they're they've been the nail in the coffin to put this on him. Right. Imagine just working in the middle of a harvest store in the middle of bumfuck nowhere, and all of a sudden, like you become the Your center of center. statewide attention, right. nationwide. Yeah, nationwide. Yeah. So investigators note witnesses describe the vehicle parked at the former CPS building as a PT Cruiser, small SUV, or a smart car. Now, smart car seems to be way off. They're way smaller. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're two-seater. Although the Focus is probably somewhere in between a smart car and a PT Cruiser. No. It's no. definitely smaller than it, a PT Cruiser and bigger smaller, than a smart car. I mean, I guess. But yeah. a, a smart car is, like, so identifiable. Yeah, they're a little bitty, like little matchboxes. All right. I'm surprised those things were ever allowed to drive. Like, yeah, well, I mean, you can drive a motorcycle. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> I've just seen a lot of old people driving smart cars, and it just seemed like they were trying to speed up the time they die. Right, right. So investigators had believed that those descriptions are similar in nature to a 2016 Ford Focus, which I would agree to that. Similar. On October 13th, 2022, Richard Allen was interviewed again by investigators. He advised he was on the trails on February 13th. He said that he saw juvenile girls on the trails. All of these things that we have basically said before, and that he said he went there to watch the fish. right. Later in his statement, he said he walked out to the first platform on the bridge. He then stated he walked back, sat on a bench on the trail, and left. He stated he parked his car on the side of an old building. He told investigators that he was wearing blue jeans and a blue or black Carhartt jacket with a hood. He advised he may have been wearing some type of head covering as well. He further claimed he saw no one else except for the juvenile girls he saw east of the Freedom Freedom Bridge. He told investigators that he owns firearms and they are at his home. 
Richard M. Allen's wife, Kathy Allen, also spoke to investigators. She confirmed that Richard did have guns and knives at the residence. She also stated that Richard still owns a blue Carhartt jacket. On October 13, 2022, investigators executed a search warrant of Richard Allen's residence at 1967 North Whiteman Drive, Delphi, Carroll County, Indiana. I'm surprised that they just put his address out there, considering his wife yeah, still lives there. Yeah, well, I mean, once in this type, it's going to be out there. It just is. Among other items, officers located jackets, boots, knives, and firearms, including a six-hour model P226, a 40 caliber pistol with serial number, and then that's not really important. Now, it makes me think he has to have had, the, the bodies had to have had some sort of like fibers or piece of clothing on them. If, if there was any sort of struggle or anything, right? or if he's stabbing them. So you, you would think if they got that Carhartt jacket, maybe it would match up. I mean, it, there'd have to be a significant struggle to, to find um, an identifiable, identifiable thread or, or cotton or something like that. If he's just controlling the situation, and, and when you're armed and they aren't, the girls may just be obliging to everything he's telling them to do. All right. Th- there wouldn't be. They're very highly unlikely. So between October 14th, 2022, and October 19th, 2022, which I will say this is very fast. Typically, anything going in the lab takes forever. Right. So they did this well, within a day. This stuff gets expedited. Yeah, they did this within a day. This is why older stuff gets put to the back. Right. <laughs> The Indiana State Police Laboratory performed an analysis on his Sig Sauer Model P226. The laboratory performed a physical examination and classification of the firearm function test, barrel, and overall length measurement, test firing, ammunition, component characterization, microscopic comparison, and an NIBIN. You know what that is? NIBIN. What's that? It's a national database that um, uh, registers every type of um, tool marking that is done on guns. So, say, um, you're... Uh, and and and, and a knife and hit can be DNA. It can be a firearm that's been used. So your your firearm was used in one case, and the tool markings were entered into it. And then that same tool markings hit on another case. They run it through the knife system, and it'll trigger a match. Oh, okay. Yeah. Same thing happens with DNA too. That's called CODIS on DNA. It's a CODIS hit. A knife hit has to do with firearms. CODIS hit has to deal with DNA. Okay. So they they ran it through knife the laboratory determined that the uh, spent firearm, spent casing located, or not spent, unspent casing located within two feet of victims' two body had been cycled through Richard M. Allen's Sig Sauer Model P226. The laboratory remarked, "An identification opinion is reached when the evidence exhibits an agreement of class characteristics and a sufficient agreement of individual marks. Sufficient agreement is related to the significant duplication of random striated." slash impressed marks as evidenced by the correspondence of a pattern or combination of patterns of surface contours. The interpretation of identification is subjective in nature and based on relevant scientific scientific research and reporting examiner's training and experience. So this is that's where we're talking about that's, like fingerprints. Yeah, right. Yeah. They, they even say that this subjective. identification is subjective yeah. and it is yeah. based on the reporting examiner's training and experience. Right. Same thing with fingerprints. So then when they ran the firearm, they found out that it was purchased by Richard Allen in 2001, and he had voluntarily came to the Indiana State Police on October 26th. He spoke with investigators. He said he never allowed anybody to borrow the gun, and he did not know why the bullet was found between the bodies of them. He again admitted that he was on the trail, but denied knowing that victim one or victim two, and denied any involvement in their murders. Carroll County Sheriff's Department Detective Blank has been part of the investigation since it started in 2017. He has had an opportunity to review and examine evidence gathered in this investigation. Detective Blank, along with other investigators, believe the evidence gathered shows that Richard Allen is the male subject seen on the video. 
Further, that the victims were forced down the hill by Richard Allen and led to the location this where they were murdered. This is a summary of the detective. So, I mean. Yeah, so this is, yeah, basically all this is just the investigators believe. Here's what we think. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's a bit unusual uh, in a probable cause affidavit, quite honestly. Usually the detective just spells out all the facts and then it is what it is. Right. It does and seem like, especially with their wording and everything, that they were trying to make this as beefy as possible. I, 100%. 100%. They're here. Here, here, media. In case you couldn't connect the dots, we'll do it for you. Right uh, on, on the probable cause affidavit. So, so he had a June fifteenth hearing, and this one, this will be the last of what we talk about in this. It's the last updates that we've been able to get from the case. But during the June fifteenth hearing, both his defense attorney and prosecutor. So the defense attorney is admitting that uh, Richard Allen had made incriminating statements while he was in prison. The prosecution said Allen confessed five or six times to killing the girls. The defense team said the vague statements are inconsistent with Allen's previous statements of denial. The judge set Allen's trial date for January 8, 26, 2024, which is quite far out. Another yeah, four months from now, but not yeah. from June. Yeah, a case like this, it's an average murder case gets tried at about a year old or more. So another big development that came out of the hearing is that the motion to dismiss the ballistic evidence will be considered at a later date. Allen's attorneys have raised questions about the science used to link the gun to the bullet at right. the crime scene. The focus for the hearing then shifted to whether or not Allen should stay in a, max, in a state maximum security prison. His defense team argued that Allen is being treated much different than other defendants and that treatment is impacting both Allen's mental and physical health as well as his ability to assist in his own defense. Allen's defense attorney said that he had previously worked out a plan for Allen to be moved to Cass County Jail, but the plan is being opposed by the prosecutor. He currently resides in the Westville Correctional Maximum Security Unit. The Cass County Sheriff said in court Thursday morning. And, and just to be clear, it is unusual for an inmate to be held in a DOC facility while waiting trial. You're usually held in the county where you're charged in just the regular county jail. Now, this is this is what I thought was interesting because on one hand, it seemed like the sheriff was like, we don't want to deal with it. But on the other hand, he was like, but I want to deal with it. Yeah, the Cass County guy. Yeah, the Cass County guy. He was moved, though, from Carroll County to... I think the neighboring county and then to the Westville facility. Right, right. All the counties were like, we don't want this. So the Cass County Sheriff originally said in court that we don't want him. But then he said that, well, my jail can take care of him. And, yeah, we could facilitate him getting there. And, I mean, yeah, it is safe for him to be there. If it's ordered, I'll do it. And, and then he was like, well, if it's ordered, then I'll do it. Right. So it's almost like he's saying, I don't want to do it, but I do wink, wink. Right. You know what right. I mean? It's okay if you send him here. Right. <laughs> So the judge ended up taking the matter under advisement, which means that they could make a decision at a later point. And that's all the information that we have since then. Nothing has came out since June 15th. I've looked, and it all just seems to be uh, repeating well, what they're going to be investing all, all the stuff we just talked about, looking into was he pressured into or was he uh, suffering from such a terrible mental illness due to his conditions that these confessions shouldn't be trustworthy, um, attacking the ballistics report, all that stuff. is The judge is doing her work. The prosecutor is doing his work. The defense attorneys are doing their work. Well, I'm sure those so, 19 documents will be explosive. That right? January date's probably still not a good one. You That's think it'll go past that? Probably. Now, this is what I think is interesting. Do you think they'll really go forward all the way through trial if they still think there's a second person involved that they don't have yet? Yeah, because they can still charge them later. Yeah. You don't think that they would think that would scare him off? Scare the second person off? Mm-hmm. Uh, the second person should already be scared off. Uh, yeah, <laughs> granted, if I was him, I wouldn't be in this country Regardless anymore. of whether Richard gets convicted or not. Yeah. Every, nobody wants to stand in trial for this case because, you know, it is it is one of those where you know, you're always innocent until proven guilty, but, man, you're starting out in a tough spot. Granted, I don't know shit about shit, but 
I just feel like there's not a second person involved. No other no. person identified a second there, person. Yeah, but there's something in the evidence out there we don't know yet that they think there right, is. Right, right. But all the, all the eyewitnesses state that they only saw one person. I know. There has to be something, though. There's... It, they haven't released it because they want it, that unique fact to stay hidden so that if if and when they catch the second person, they can t- pin it to them based on something no one else knew. So Makes that, sense. that's coming. That's coming. So, yeah, that's uh, that's the latest here going on the Delphi case. This episode ran a little long, but hopefully you guys enjoyed it. There's a lot of information to get through. We're going to continue to follow this one all the way through. Uh, we'll, we'll bring another episode on it when it... Um, uh, becomes relevant again. There's more information out there to talk about. So we appreciate you all joining us and listening to us on uh, another episode of Pine Wall Talks. See ya.